Wow, what a week for British politics. Now, no heckling, please. I'm sure it won't have escaped your attention that our, our Prime Minister, Theresa May, uh, has stepped down and we now have a new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. And whatever we think of either Theresa May or Boris Johnson, if we're followers of Jesus, then the Bible commands us to pray for those who are in authority and to respect them and obey them. And, of course, the guy who wrote that, Paul, lived under Nero. So if Paul could do it, then that's something for us to, to try and aim for as well. And in fact, it's in the very book of the Bible that we're working through at the moment, uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, where Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I think it was Stuart who was preaching on this particular passage a few weeks ago. So whatever we think of those in our, who are in authority in our nation, our duty as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is to pray for them. And that's something that I'd encourage you to do in the coming weeks as we're perhaps in a, in a crucial time in our country. Uh, pray that you'd pray for our leaders uh, here in the UK and worldwide too. But, you know, there's no doubt that most politicians have a reputation for not always being trustworthy. That might not be deserved, but they, most politicians seem to have a reputation for not always being entirely trustworthy. Politicians have a bit of a history and a bit of a habit of saying one thing and then doing something else. They, they often promise the earth and then they do something different or it falls kind of way short uh, or they just do something completely different entirely. I think if you went out onto the streets of Newcastle this morning and you asked people what, what, what words they'd use to describe our politicians of, of whatever kind of political persuasion, you'd get all sorts of phrases that we probably couldn't repeat uh, here in church this morning. And I'm pretty certain that the word trustworthy wouldn't be a word that would be used for most politicians um, in our country, or, or, or certainly many politicians. Politicians are probably up there with estate agents and with second-hand car salesmen when it comes to being thought of as being trustworthy and reliable. If you are an estate agent this morning or a car salesman, my apologies, nothing personal. But you know, generally, they're probably along with bankers these days, are occupations that are not generally thought of as being trustworthy, and politicians too these days. To be known to be trustworthy is a great thing, isn't it? To be able to be able to say, uh, I'm known as being trustworthy, or that other people have that, that, that thought of us, that's a great thing to be able to, to have people say that about us. It's such a, an important thing. It's such a great compliment to have other people say that of ourselves. And in a world where so few things and so few people can be described as trustworthy and, and, and are actually trustworthy, it's great to know this morning that God is trustworthy and that what God says in the Bible is completely and utterly trustworthy. If we're going to build our lives on something, we want to know that it's trustworthy, don't we? If we're going to invest our lives and our time and our efforts and our money in something, we want to know that it's trustworthy. And if we're going to trust something or, or someone, we want to know that they are trustworthy. We want to know that they're trustworthy. And in the passage of the Bible that we're looking at today, Paul begins with what he says is a trustworthy saying. He says it's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is a really important thing that he's saying. So we're going to read this little passage, just a few verses. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're working our way through this letter from Paul to Timothy, a church leader, and we've got to chapter 4. Paul Mullis last week uh, did the first bit of chapter 4 for us, and we're just going to finish off this chapter today, uh, uh, verse 9 of chapter 4 through to the end of the chapter, verse 16. So I'm just going to read it out. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along if you want to, otherwise you can just listen, that's fine. I'm going to read these verses. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, who is a young leader uh, from Paul, one of the main leaders of the church uh, in the first century. He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this, we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who he'd appointed to oversee the church or the churches in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city in what is now uh, Western Turkey. And he'd written to Timothy to tell him how to lead these churches and how they should function. But also to instruct Timothy personally how he should behave, how he should live, how he should act. And particularly because he was a, a key leader, it was important that Timothy watched his life really carefully. And in this section, he takes time, to, he takes time out of his letter. He kind of pauses again to remind Timothy what it's all about, what life is all about, what Timothy's mission is, if you like, what the Christian faith is all about. And this is what he says in verse 9. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. We have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, and especially of those who believe. Here is a trustworthy statement. Here is a statement that we can build our lives upon. We have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. The people in Ephesus where Timothy lived and where he was a church leader, they worshipped, they were putting their hope in this fertility goddess called Artemis. That's where people went to, to the massive big temple and they worshipped Artemis. That was what they were putting their faith and hope in. But the people in the church there had turned away from this idol. They turned to put their hope in the living God. And Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, we're not worshipping a a dead, just an idol. We're worshipping the living God. The people in the UK today are are probably putting their hope in all sorts of things, aren't they? Politicians, wealth, status, religion, relationships. Some people even worship an idol like Artemis. Millions of people worldwide today still physically worship idols just like Artemis. They're putting their hope in them. But, you know, the only person that is trustworthy, the only person that is worthy of our trust, the Bible says, is the living God. The God of the Bible, the one who became a human being in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago. This statement is trustworthy because the one in whom the statement is about is trustworthy. He's the living God. He's the living God that Paul says here offers salvation to all people. He's the living God. He offers forgiveness. Well, that's what salvation means. It means to be saved from something bad. The living God, Jesus, offers salvation. He offers forgiveness. 
He offers forgiveness of all those wrong things that we've done. He offers a relationship with himself. He offers eternal life to all those that believe in him. All those who will put their trust in him and surrender their lives to him. It's in the living God that we put our hope. And I guess most of us here today have done that. We've put our hope in the living God. We've received this salvation. We've received this free gift which gives us forgiveness, eternal life, a relationship with God. It's a phenomenal thing. And it's in the living God, the one who can be people's saviour, that we've put our hope, Paul says. It's not in politics. It's not in politicians. It's not in philosophical uh, things. It's not in money. It's not in wealth. It's not in an idol. It is in the living God because he is the only one that is trustworthy. He is the only one that delivers. And just in case Timothy had forgotten why he was doing what he was doing, Paul takes time to remind him here. It's all about God our saviour and bringing lost people to him. This is what Timothy's tr- this is what Paul's trying to get across to Timothy. It's all about the living God. It's all about the living God who can be the savior of all mankind. See, we have all sinned. The Bible says that each one of us, every single one of us here today has sinned. We've all come short of God's perfect standard. And as a result, the Bible says we all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve God's punishment because God is holy. He's perfect and he wouldn't be God if he didn't deal with, he didn't punish our sins. And so Despite the fact that we deserve God's wrath, God nevertheless loves us. He loves you so much that he came in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago and died on the cross. And as he was punished there physically, he was spiritually taking the punishment of God for you and for me. Jesus was in your place. He took your place. He took my place so that we wouldn't have to be punished. We wouldn't have to face God's wrath. We wouldn't have to face an eternal punishment. Instead, we could be made right with God. We could have a perfect relationship with God. We could be forgiven. We could have eternal life. We've been singing about that this morning. We're going to celebrate it in a minute as we take bread and wine to remember Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for us there as he died on that cross. This saying is trustworthy because the one who says it is trustworthy. And so we put our hope and our trust in Jesus, the living God, to be our savior. So here's a question for you today. Who or what are you trusting in this morning? What is it or or who is it that you're putting your hope in? What is it you're building your life on? What are you hoping for? What is it you're kind of fingers crossed, hopefully it'll all work out in the end. This is what I'm kind of building my life on. Is it a politician, a political philosophy, a religion, your wealth? Only Jesus can be trusted. The only person you can trust with your life, with your death, and with your eternity is the living God, Jesus. And it's because Jesus is the savior of all those who believe that those of us who've put our faith and our trust and our hope in him should be laboring and striving. Paul says this, and for this we labor and strive. It's for this, it's for the fact that he's the, he is our hope and that he's our savior if we believe in him. It's for this that we labor and strive. We work hard for Jesus. We work hard because, because he is worthy of it and the message, this trustworthy saying, is so important. So we labor and strive for it. This hope, this offer of Jesus to be people's savior, someone that they can trust their life, their death and their eternity with, it is so important that we need to be working hard for this cause. We're going to expend energy and sweat and tears sometimes in the cause of the good news about Jesus, what the Bible calls the gospel. Just as non-Christians can be putting their hope and trust in all sorts of things that they hope might save them or deliver, Those of us who are Christians can be laboring and striving for all sorts of things 
which, whilst they might not be wrong in and of themselves, are a distraction from what is really important. What are you laboring? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, what are you laboring and striving for? What is it that absorbs your time, your energy, your money? Are you laboring and striving for God's glory, whether that's at work or at home or wherever that happens to be, and and for lost people to come to faith in Jesus? Is is that what you labor and strive for? Is that what you're giving yourself for? A cause for eternity? Or are you giving yourself to something else or perhaps devoting significant chunks of your energy and time and money to, to other things, which might not be wrong in and of themselves, but they divert us, they, they, they absorb the energy, the commitment that Jesus should be receiving. You see, write this down. The living God, the Savior of all who believe, wants us to work hard for him. It's about us working hard for him. Salvation is free. Eternal life is free. It's a free gift. But having received that, God wants us to give our lives to him and expend ourselves in his in his service. We labor and we strive for this, Paul says. He, Paul wants Timothy, to, he wants to remind Timothy why he's working hard, why he's enduring all sorts of problems and persecution and opposition. He's laboring and striving for the living God. This is a, this is a cause of eternal significance. And he's laboring and striving for people who don't know Jesus to come to faith in Jesus and be saved for all eternity. So serving God, whether that's full-time like Paul and Timothy, or whether that's through and in our jobs and in our families and in our neighborhoods, it's hard work, or it should be. If we're not expending ourselves, if we don't have to, in a sense, sacrifice, I think, well, I kind of like to watch this, but I'm going to not do that because there's some work to do for Jesus Unless there's some laboring and striving and toiling, then we're probably not really working for Jesus. There needs to be an element of sacrifice in this. Wherever we happen to be, wherever God has called us to be. But if we're going to give ourselves to anything, let's make sure that it's a cause that is worthwhile. A cause that is trustworthy. Everybody wants a cause. God has created us that way. He's wired us that way. The cause he's designed us for is his glory. It's to serve him. And any time we serve anything other than that, we are not living the life that he designed us for. So who or what or what or who is it that receives your hard work? Who or what is it that absorbs your energy, your time, your money? Who are you and what are you laboring and striving for? You know, we get one life. Please don't waste that life laboring and striving for things that have little or, or no eternal value. Last week, Paul spoke on uh, physical training. Paul says, Paul the Apostle says it's, it's of some value, but what really counts is godliness. So there's lots of stuff that has some value, but what really counts is godliness. Let's labor and strive for the living God. Now, Timothy, of course, was a full-time church leader. That was what he did. And because Paul had appointed him to this key role of overseeing these churches in Ephesus, he was in a unique position of influence. And so Paul says to him in verse 11, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. And he's referring, I think, really to the whole content of this letter. And one of the jobs of church elders and church leaders is to ensure that the Bible is taught in church. Bible teaching isn't the only thing that a church should do, but it should be central. It should be right at the core of what we do, along with worship and communion and fellowship and other things. But Bible teaching should have a central place in church life. And it's not just preaching and teaching like this this morning. A lot of my time as a, as, a, as a full-time church elder is spent in working with new Christians one-on-one, just uh, teaching them from the scriptures, working the way through what it means to follow Jesus. 
And so Paul says this, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Now most people wouldn't have owned a copy, certainly not in Ephesus, they wouldn't have owned a copy of the Old Testament of the Bible, and they certainly wouldn't have probably owned the bits of the New Testament that have been written at this stage. So it was important, Paul was saying to Timothy, look, when the church gathers like we've gathered this morning, God's people assembled together, that you get up and you publicly read the scriptures, because people won't have access to it otherwise. And having publicly read it, it's not, Paul's not just saying we just stand up and read it for the sake of reading it. We always have to have a slot where the Bible's read. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in the Greek, in the Greek it's publicly read this and then teach and preach from it. Explain it. Apply it to people's life. Make it real for people. And that's something that we as elders take really seriously here at Regent. We want to be a church, and hopefully we are a church that preaches and teaches the scriptures, and, and, and that is a church that is built on them. That was Timothy's task. But those who read it uh, or or heard it being read and explained to them by Timothy and by perhaps the other elders in the church there, they also had a responsibility, which was to respond to what they heard. You know, it's really easy, isn't it, to, to rock up on a Sunday and to listen to the preaching and the teaching, and we might even sometimes think that it's all right. We might even think, oh, that was okay this morning. But then it's so easy just to kind of drift off home and do nothing about it. Then we think, oh, yeah, you know, Paul said a good thing, Stuart made a good point, Joel made a good point, whatever it might be. But then so often in the kind of busyness of life, we, we kind of go home and we forget what's been said. Or, or sometimes we deliberately choose to ignore what's been said because we don't want to confront those issues in our life. We don't want to deal with those problems. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote these words in the Bible. He said, do not merely listen to the word, by which he means the Bible, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's possible to be here every Sunday and listen intently to what is being said and hopefully nodding and agreeing with most of what's being said, but never actually getting around to doing what it says. And when we do that, we deceive ourselves, James says. We listen, but we don't do anything about it. See, write this down. God wants us to listen to the Bible, but he also wants us to do what it says. He wants us to listen. That's good. But he wants us to do it as well. Don't just be listeners, uh, hearers of the word. Be doers also. It's not enough to listen. We need to act upon what we hear. And I wonder if God has been speaking to you recently about something in your life. I have no idea what that would be. I don't have any sense of that. But you this morning, you know where you're at with God. And maybe God has been speaking to you about something, nudging you, prompting you, encouraging you, challenging you, whatever that might be. And that's probably happening. There's about 70 people here this morning. That's probably happening in 70 different ways because God is amazing and he can do that. It's 70 different people all at once in different ways. So what, what, what you hear this morning may be different for each one of you. But what has God been saying to you through his living word, the Bible? The Bible, this is just a book, but it's alive because it's God's word. As the Holy Spirit speaks through it, it comes alive and people's lives are changed. What is God saying to you in your life? Not just right now, but but has God been speaking into your life about something? Please don't just be a hearer of God's word. If God is speaking to you, then act upon what he's saying to you. Now, Timothy was a young church leader. He was probably in his late 20s at the time Paul wrote this letter. And Timothy was well aware of his age. And there were lots of people at the church there who were older than him, it seems. And so Paul says this, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. 
Now, I can identify with Timothy here because, obviously, I'm so young, but... No, sadly, that's not the case. But when, when Claire and I went to Hereford, which was 20 years ago, uh, we went to help, let's be part of a team there to help plant a new church. And I was only 26, Claire was only 24, and everybody in the church was older than we were. Everybody. There wasn't anybody younger than us apart from some of the kids. And, and actually, it's a really daunting thing to lead a church and to teach people when everybody is 10 years older than you, at least, and some people are a generation older than you. And sometimes people who are older than you like to remind you that you're young because it keeps you in your place. And it means sometimes, you know, I don't have to listen to what you're saying. I, I can kind of push that away because you're just young. You're just young Andy or, or, or comments like that, which aren't always overly helpful. Sometimes people will do that. And it's quite daunting if you're a young leader. And I can imagine Timothy being really quite daunted by the fact that he, had a, he was leading a church or leading church, overseeing churches in an apostolic role. And he was young and he found that daunting. I showed this photograph a few weeks ago. This was me at age 26. This was Paul and Keith, all about the same age. Don't we all look so young? Don't we all just look so young? Now, of course, you all know what we look like now, but you know where this is going, don't you? I, I, I got face app on my phone this week. Now, we're no longer that young, and I wonder what we'll look like when we're too old to be the elders, when we're just the old man sat at the back, and there'll be hopefully some younger, newer elders. Well, this is what we might look like, according to face app. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Keith. Just yesterday, yeah. This is this is yesterday, yeah, yeah. It's horrendous, isn't it? Utterly horrendous. If you're young and you're looking at entering into a relationship with somebody, get their photograph, put it into FaceApp, and just just so you know what you might be dealing with in 40 years' time. You know, when you're young, it's hard to be taken seriously. Often is, and and some of you are only 15, 16, 17. 18, 19, some of you are in your 20s and 30s, I'm 46. There's always people older than us. And sometimes it's really difficult to be taken seriously when we're young. And when God is using us and we've got a message to give and God is calling us, whether that's in a kind of full-time role like mine or whatever it might be, it can be difficult. And often when a young person is preaching and teaching and leading in a church, it's sometimes the case that those who are older than them Sometimes try to use the person's age as a way of not having to engage with what that person is saying. It's a kind of way of avoiding the reality of the truth of the Bible by dismissing it because of the age of the person. We can sometimes say things like, well, what does he know? He's only 26. And so we can use the person's age as a reason to ignore what they're saying. And so as a young leader, we have to, you have to work really hard at earning the right to be heard, at earning the right to be respected, and listen to, and a younger elder, a younger Bible teacher has to work twice as hard at getting people to take them seriously. It, it shouldn't be that way, but it so often is that way. And I guess that's, that's life, that's normal. So Paul says to Timothy, set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. In other words, demonstrate to everyone else that they should take you seriously. Don't give people a reason not to engage with what you're teaching. Don't give people a reason to ignore what you're saying because they point out some flaw in your life. And if today you're someone who would be viewed as being young, and I guess we're all younger than somebody here this morning, if you are viewed as someone who would be viewed as being young and you're already serving God in some sort of capacity in this church, or maybe you believe God's calling you into that in the future, whatever that might look like, then can I encourage you to, to look at these words carefully and take them on board? In other words, firstly, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But secondly, 
Set an example for others in your speech. Are you a good example to others in the way that you speak and in what you talk about? Jesus said this, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of our mouths is a reflection on what's going on in our hearts. So are you a good example? Whatever age we are at this morning, we don't have to just restrict this to young Bible teachers or young leaders. All of us, whatever age we are, is what comes out of our mouths, is it a good example to others? Is the way we live and conduct ourselves, is it a good example to other Christians, particularly perhaps newer Christians or younger Christians than us? When people look at us, do they want to model themselves on us? Is that what they see of us? And you might only be 25, but actually those who are perhaps only 15 will be modeling themselves on you. You might think, well, that's true, that's what happens. You might be 35, those who are perhaps 25 are modeling themselves on you. It's not just when you get to be 50 or 60, every single one of us, other people are watching and taking note. Paul says, set an example in love and in faith. Do I love other people? When people look at me, do they see someone who sacrificially loves other people? Do I live my faith out, my faith in Jesus? In fact, James says that faith without works, in other words, we say we have a faith, but that has to be expressed, it has to be seen in the way we live. Do we live that faith out by sacrificially loving other people and serving them? Paul says this in Galatians 5 verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then Paul says, set an example in purity. We live in a world that's full of all kinds of impurity and especially sexual immorality. We are increasingly bombarded with all kind of temptations and sinful influences. Difficult to put any kind of electronic device on or TV without having something that's kind of bombarding us that is sinful. And it's harder than ever to keep our lives pure, especially for men in, and especially those in leadership. We, we, we need to pursue purity. We need to pursue holiness and we need to help each other do that. We need to help each other live lives of purity because that is so difficult and so, so hard to do in today's world. Paul says this in Ephesians 5 verse 3, Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Not even a hint. We've got to ruthlessly pursue purity. And a key uh, weapon in this fight is internet accountability software. You know, 50% of men and 30% of women in churches like this admit to regularly struggling, uh, regularly looking at internet pornography. This is a struggle that followers of Jesus have never faced before in history until the last 20 years. No men and women have ever faced this temptation before. Instant access to impurity. And it is such a devastating temptation. It is so devastating and destructive. But a great way of combating this temptation is to use accountability software. There's two systems. There are more, but these are two that I'm aware of. One is accountable to you.com and the other is covenanteyes.com. And you might think, well, this isn't an issue for me. Well, that's fantastic for you, but it is an issue for a lot of people, believe me. I've personally got this on my all my internet devices. It means that Keith gets a report of any questionable internet activity by me, although after that this morning he might decide he doesn't want to help me anymore in that. But, um, but, but it helps keep me pure, hopefully. It helps keep me pure. It's also hopefully a public signal, the fact that we're being honest and open and saying we need this. 
It's a public signal around, to, to those around us that as a church elder, purity and especially sexual purity is incredibly important to me and should be to all of us. It's not just for those in leadership. If we really want to be serious about following Jesus, we need to do this kind of stuff. Personally, I would advise every man and probably every woman, but every man to install this kind of thing. If, you know, why would you not do it? What have you got to hide and what have you got to lose? People are watching us all the time. Other Christians look to us. Newer Christians, younger Christians, for an example of how to follow Jesus. And if we're in any kind of leadership position in church, not just in eldership, but especially in church eldership, then we need to live lives that are godly examples to others. Paul's heart for Timothy was that he would be able to say, look, I might be young, I might be be young, but my speech, my conduct, my faith, my love and my purity is a great example to everyone. So write this down, we need to be a good example to others of a godly life. A godly life is one that is orientated towards God. And we need to be a good example of that. Not just those in leadership, all of us. To be a good example to others of a godly life. So what steps do you need to take? I don't know where, what that means for you this morning, but what steps do you need to take to make that become a reality in your life? Now Paul also encourages Timothy to use his spiritual gifts Spiritual gifts are abilities that the Holy Spirit gives us either when we become a Christian or at some subsequent point in time. They can be miraculous like uh, prophecy and speaking in tongues or they can be very unspectacular and kind of behind the scenes stuff like administration or serving people. They're all spiritual gifts. They're literally called gifts of grace, charisma. It It means a gift that we've not earned. Paul says to Timothy in verse 14, do not neglect your gift your charisma, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now, the gift that Timothy received was probably this gift of public uh, Bible teaching. It doesn't say that, but the context kind of suggests that. But whatever it was, Paul says to Timothy, use your gift. God's given you a gift, use it. And if you have trusted in Jesus this morning, then you have at least one spiritual gift. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are not a sign of godliness and spirituality. They are special abilities that God gives to each, each person so that we can serve him and serve others as he decides. The person who has five spiritual gifts isn't more spiritual or superior to the person who only has three. These are gifts of grace. In other words, abilities that God gives us that are not earned, they're not deserved. That's why they're called gifts of grace, abilities of grace. It's an ability that God gives us in his grace. It's not because we deserve it or because we're superior to anyone else. Now, if I was to ask you today, what spiritual gifts has the Holy Spirit given to you? What would you say? Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? So important that we know what our spiritual gifts are so that we can get busy using them to serve God and to serve others. The Apostle Peter says this in the Bible, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. And when Jesus comes again, he will demand from each one of us an account for how we've used the resources and the spiritual gifts that he's given to us. If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, or if you're not sure, then a great tool to help you with this is a a spiritual gifts inventory. And if you've completed the the shape uh, uh, material here at Regent, you'll know about this, but even if you have done that, I would encourage you to do it again. I've put a whole stack of these out on the the entrance hall. It's just a, a tool... This isn't in the Bible, but it points towards gifts that are in the Bible, and it just asks questions. It helps tease out what those spiritual gifts might be. And I'd really encourage you, if you've never done this, or even if you've done it a few years ago, do it again, and see what spiritual gifts you might have. If you don't know what they are, you should know. So there's a whole stack there on the entrance. We'll take one of those. If if we run out, then let me know, and I'll send it to you. If you're unsure what they are, it's good to know what our spiritual gifts are. 
And then look at what Paul says to Timothy. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. It's so important that we take not only our spiritual gifts seriously and know what they are, put them to good use, but also that we live lives that are a good example to others who are watching us. A Christian faith, our relationship with God, shouldn't be just something that we kind of play around with. It's not something that we just pick up and put down when it suits us. Paul says to Timothy here, and to us today, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. The ESV says, immerse yourself in them. Living for God, serving God, it's not a game, it's not a hobby, it's meant to be a whole life-consuming thing. We've put our hope in the living God who is our saviour. He demands our all, he deserves our all. God wants us to immerse ourselves in him and immerse ourselves in serving him and in living for him. Paul concludes this section with, with these words to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Can we get that verse up? Thank you. As a church leader and a Bible teacher, it was important that Timothy paid close attention to how he lived and to what he was teaching, to his doctrine. It was important that he persevered, that he kept on going, that he kept on teaching the truth in the Bible because it's the truth that saves people for all eternity, the truth about who God is, who Jesus is, and who we are. It was important that what he taught was correct, and that it didn't get twisted or distorted, which was something Paul had warned him would be happening. And those of us who are Bible teachers here this morning, whether that's up the front or whether that's with children or with the young people or with anybody, we need to make sure that what we teach is accurate and is faithful to the Bible. We have a huge responsibility. In fact, James says this, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That's a kind of sobering verse, isn't it? But watching our life and our doctrine closely is actually something we should all do, whether or not we're Bible teachers. It's important that we take great care over how we live. We need to live to bring glory to God and be a good example to others. And is what I believe, is my doctrine biblical? Do I know what the Bible teaches? Am I committed to standing by it and living it and, and, and sharing that with others, even when that means going against the flow and, and standing out, going against what is popular? so important that we know what the Bible teaches and what we therefore believe because God's glory is at stake and people's eternal destiny is at stake. And that brings us back to our first verse. Paul says this, we have put our hope in the living God who is the saviour of all men and especially of those who believe. It's so important that we know what the Bible teaches about God, about Jesus, about sin, about how we can get right with God, how we can have eternal life. We have a living hope in the living God, the one who is our saviour. And it's this living hope for which we should be labouring and striving so that our faith is living and active. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this living hope. We thank you for the living God, you, the one in whom we've put our trust. Thank you that you are the saviour of those who believe in you. Thank you, Lord, that so many of us here today can say we have put our faith in Jesus. And we thank you, therefore, in faith, we know that we are saved. We have this salvation. We are, we are at one with you. We are at peace with you. We've been forgiven. We've been made right. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the grace of God that has appeared to all men. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for loving us. Help us to live lives, to have that living faith in that living hope that we might make a difference for you in the living God. Bless us, we pray. Help us to live for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.